I'm here with Father Bart Tollison. He's a priest of the Diocese of Helena, Montana, a good friend of Father Stuart Long, and I just asked him to tell us a little bit about Father Stu. Uh, you knew him personally? You were ordained with him? And, we were ordained, uh, yeah, December 14, 2007. We were ordained together at the cathedral okay. in Helena. And he grew up here in Helena? He did. He was born in Seattle. He grew up in Helena, and... Uh, he didn't grow up in a religious home. He had uh, two older, or, or an older brother and sister, and then he was born, and then his brother Stephen was about four years younger. Mm -hmm. And then uh, then four years later, uh, another sister, Amy. Mm -hmm. okay. And he lost his younger brother, right, at five or six? Yeah, so when Stu was, uh, was 10 and Stephen was six, uh, Stephen contracted some sort of form of meningitis and went to sleep and never woke up. Um, and you know, he, they took him to the hospital and he died there. And uh, you know, Stu was like, where's my brother? And, and his parents, Stu's parents didn't really know how to communicate other than just kind of pointing up to the sky and saying, right. you know, he's gone, he's not coming back. Right. And that was a, a, a deep pain for him his whole life? It was, I, I, I you know, it, it, despite his own sufferings, he, he would always say, I don't know why God took Stephen. Mm -hmm. It was always kind of this question about why did God take Stephen? And of course, he has the answer to that now. Mm -hmm. um, they're probably together now. But right. uh, it was something he pondered throughout his life. Right. And his, his youth here in Helena was full of fun and zeal. Well, yeah, so <laughs> I know that uh, he and his buddies did all kinds of hijinks and antics. Um, one of the, his first, he said, my first exposure to organized religion was uh, on the way to school. Uh, the cathedral was a shortcut to get to his elementary school. And so he and his buddies would run through the cathedral every day. And uh, there was a priest in there that he'd start screaming at him, you kids get out of here, don't come through here. Mm. Stu thought that was really funny, so. <laughs> and, and his father was away uh, with work a lot, right? Yeah, my understanding was, is particularly after Stephen died, uh, Bill uh, especially was operating heavy equipment, and he had connections down in Los Angeles. So he oftentimes would be gone for a couple months, go down to L.A. and work, and then come back home for a week or two sometimes, and uh, then go back on another job. So he was in and out of the house a lot when Stu was growing up. And Stu is... Large, big guy, athletic, and had some success. Yeah, he played football. He was 6'2", and uh, it was a lineman in football. He wrestled in, in high school, played football in college. And uh, Stu always said that uh, whenever I played on a football team, we'd always lose. And then when I would move on, they'd start winning. So he says, you want to have a winning football team, put me on your team for a couple of years, and then I can move on. But uh, it was in college at Carroll College in Helena that Stu learned to box. It was a priest, actually, that invited him down to the gym. He was late for this priest class one day and called him, called Stu up after class and said, why were you late? And Stu gave some lame excuse, and the uh, priest said, well, your punishment is to meet me in the gym at this afternoon. And so there, and he says, I'm going to teach you how to box. And so the, the priest himself was a great amateur boxer and uh, taught Stu how to box and realized he had some real skills at it. And... Uh, Got him another coach, and he boxed in Montana. And he boxed after college, right? At he did. He his plan was, you know, here we you get you graduate from college, you get a, a degree in English, 
and uh, his his life plan was to become a professional boxer. <laughs> so he had a few bouts. Um, Stu had injured uh, his uh, tooth and his jaw a little bit when he was in a, on a bicycle once. He fell off a bicycle and knocked a tooth out, and uh, they tried to put it back in, and it just created all kinds of, uh, of infection. So he was a little weak there, and, and Stu in the ring took a blow right to that place, a heavy punch, he said, and just he could feel the pain. He said, my jaw just kind of cracked and broke and mm. just the searing pain. And so uh, after that, he had, you know, fevers and infections. And it was just like, you really shouldn't be boxing. This this area in your face is really weak. Right. And uh, Stu tried it once again and realized it was it was he was too afraid of getting hit there. He couldn't play. He couldn't box the way he wanted to. So he gave it up. Mm. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to learn about his love of literature and things he was a big reader and he was yeah he was a reader i mean if Stu uh, read something he liked he'd keep reading it and he'd really read it and right. if he started reading something he didn't really care for he just kind of toss it aside yeah. you wouldn't expect it when you met him uh, right. how how much knowledge he had he was he was very bright right yeah. and his his father's sisters were telling me the dad is a big reader as well. Yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, you meet Bill Long and you think the same thing, and then you start to talk to him and you realize this guy's very well read. He has a lot of knowledge about a lot of things. Very, very bright. They both have very high IQs. Right, right. And and that kind of comes up later too. I think his love of philosophy and things. But um, so what happens? His boxing career is over. He's doing some bouncing work. Yeah. So <laughs> his his work. My understanding was he was a bouncer because he was really really good bouncer. Um, he was also a good street fighter, and uh, so he was just kind of moping around the house uh, and doing bouncing work. And my understanding was he was kind of driving, particularly his mom, Kathleen, crazy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she had an idea one day. She was like, Stu, you like movies? And she was like, I love movies. And she was like, well, you're not doing anything here. Why don't you move to L.A. and mm -hmm. get into the movies and give it a try? And Stu really liked that idea and thought this was his calling. So he, like... Packed up a car pretty quickly and went down to L.A., found a place to live and tried to break into the movies. And I'm not sure in a certain way it was Kathleen's way of trying to get him out of the house, you know, just <laughs> give him something to get him out of the house and stop moping around yeah. after his boxing career was over. And somebody was telling me, too, that he would joke with his father. They would back and forth. They would quote movie lines to each other. It was kind of a thing in the whole long household. They, they would they would focus on movies they liked, and uh -huh. they would have movie lines. And yeah. just that they would say a line, and everyone would know kind of what you were getting at. I <laughs> quoted Rocky a lot, I think. So <laughs> There's a lot of deep truth in Rocky. <laughs> so he goes to Hollywood, and he... I heard he sold shoes. Is this one of his first jobs? I, I don't know that he sold shoes oh. or not. Um, he would do odd jobs. He yeah. worked uh, as an extra in movies and got paid to do that, but he didn't like that because, you know, you just earn the background yeah. the whole time. He tried out for a lot of parts, and uh, he was cast in one role. It was a movie of the week for CBS, and he, he was the bad guy in a murderer. Mm. And uh, Stu said it was so awful that he never wanted anyone to ever watch it. Mm. And uh, I, we're still trying to see if we can track it down. <laughs> I'm like, I was like, I know he said he had a copy, and I asked him if I could see it. He goes, never. <laughs> no one's ever going to see that. Uh, so, But it was also, uh, if we say in Hollywood, the casting couch yeah. uh, that got Stu turned in another direction. He did not like that and yeah. really bothered him. And he was like, I don't want to have to deal with that. 
And that was kind of the thing, a few propositions, and he was like, I'm done, I'm, yeah. I'm done with this. Somebody was telling me at some point he, he sold shoes, didn't have a car, and early on he, he was running to work, but the problem was it was along a freeway. <laughs> it probably is true. I haven't. I haven't heard that. I know that he uh, did. He got gigs bouncing. He he bounced at a comedy club and a bar um, when he was trying to do yeah. acting, and so he was yeah. really good at that. And he could get work doing that. Right. And eventually, he he worked at a, a museum, right? Right, right. So it's an art museum, the I think the Norton Simon Museum, mm -hmm. and uh, he kind of I think got his way in initially as kind of a security person there and then he just worked his way up and by the time uh, he left I think he was supervising over 60 people mm -hmm. and he really liked that work and he was good at it yeah. and they liked him yeah. I got online and looked up the museum and it, yeah, it had serious artwork in it it yeah. was a serious thing and uh, and somebody I saw a reflection somebody was saying they worked there at the time with him and and they would talk philosophy for hours. He said he loved philosophy, and uh, you know, just they named some philosophers they talked about. But um, but one night he's going home from the art museum, and, and what happens? <laughs> right. So it was uh, it was at night. He was coming home from work, and Stu had a motorcycle, and uh, he loved motorcycles. And you know, I can just imagine Stu wasn't the probably safest motorcycle driver, you know, being bold and just coming home on the LA freeway. And the way he described it to me was a car pulled out kind of in front of him through a lane and uh, just knocked him off his bike really hard. And he and the bike flew into the air. And then he said he was just coming down another car before he even hit the pavement, another car hit him and pushed him across the, the highway. And then a car ran over him, a third car ran over him. Wow. Yeah. Did he like break a lot of bones? I mean, like legs and stuff or? You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I need to check on that because yeah. I don't know. The, the thing that was amazing is I think he was out of the hospital like nine days later hmm. and he needed a lot of rehabilitation. So if there were, if there were bones that he broke in his legs, um, you know, it, he got healed pretty quickly and he was doing rehab for a couple of months to get back. Mm -hmm. And he had something of a mystical experience, right, after that? Yeah. So, well, in, during the motorcycle accident, um, you know, he, he, he said, I mean, sometimes he would say, I never had an out-of-body experience, but then he would describe an out-of-body experience. <laughs> Just like for a moment, thinking he could see himself on the freeway, you know, his lifeless body on the freeway and uh, the ambulance. And then he says, I remember waking uh, up in the ambulance a couple of times and there being a lot of blood and, feeling like I, you know, life was kind of coming out of me. And um, he said, after the whole thing, he just thought, I've been spared. You know, I should be dead and I've been spared. And I don't know why, but I knew someone intervened and kept me alive. Something beyond, you know, just medicine. Yeah. In fact, when they got to the hospital, they thought Stu uh, was going to die. And uh, they put him in a room. Bill was working in L.A. at the time, so he came over to the hospital and was trying to find Stu. And went through the ER and was looking in rooms and uh, said, I finally found Stu and he was in there by himself and I thought he was dead. And I went up and checked his pulse and there, I could feel a pulse and no one was doing anything to help him. And then pretty quickly his girlfriend came in and started talking to him and Stu came, came to when his girlfriend started talking to him. And the nurse comes in and says, well, I guess you're not going to die after all. Maybe we ought to do something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, wow. So, 
And some of his girlfriends did have a good impact on him, right? Practicing the faith. Well, there was the one girlfriend that he was really serious with, and I know they talked marriage a lot, and they were even preparing for marriage. Um, but uh, after his accident, he was uh, rehabilitating, and she was helping him. And Stu said she comes in one day and starts to vacuum, and it's like he's looking at her thinking, there's a strange glow about you. Why are you glowing? And uh, she said, well, I decided today for the first time in about 13 years to go back to confession. Mm -hmm. So because of Stu's accident, she went back to the church, mm -hmm. made a confession, and she had decided uh, and told Stu, if you want to marry me, you have to be Catholic. So mm -hmm. Stu said, well, okay. Now, it's funny because he'd gone to a Catholic college and didn't think much of religion, but because of that accident, he had a new opening to something in his heart. So he agreed and started RCIA. Oh, wow. And did he get active in the parish and things? Was accepted at the parish? Or was it a close community in the parish, you think? Or? Yes, well, my understanding, he got really active, mm -hmm. really took to the faith, made some good friends, uh, started volunteering, uh, did a lot of pro-life work, um, particularly after he was Catholic. Um, he got really involved, always was a big believer in pro-life. Mm. Wow. And um, and then his this kind of journey progressed and thinking about the priesthood, how did that come? Right. So when he when he was baptized, he said, "I had this strange notion as I came out of the waters that God was calling me to be a priest." He said, "I didn't hear a voice or anything like that." But and did he do like a full immersion? Or? I think there was an immersion. Yeah, I don't oh, think. Wow. I mean, I don't know exactly. I, I don't yeah. think it was exactly the way the film depicted yeah. it. But you know, it's yeah. it, there was something like that yeah. and. He went and talked to the priest after the baptism a few days later, and the priest was like, well, every young man has this idea they want to be a priest when right. they you know, right. become Catholic, and don't worry, it'll go away after a few months, right. especially in your case, you know. Right. And uh, it didn't for Stu. It just kept kind of coming back, and he tried to push it away, and then he'd come back. He pushed it away and come back, and uh, after he broke up with his girlfriend, um, he's, he dated a few other women mm -hmm. and uh, would even talk to them about becoming a priest, and they were like, why are you talking to us about becoming a priest. One woman, I understand, got really mad at him and said, you shouldn't be going out on dates with girls if you want to be a priest. Mm -hmm. And he, he like kind of took that seriously. So at that point, he uh, quit, his, you know, quit his job at the museum, started working at a Catholic school, getting a lot less money. He was coaching, uh, did football at first, and then went to coaching wrestling, and he was teaching religion. And um, he lived with a, another guy that was a, a Catholic guy and had good Catholic friends. They hung out together, but he wasn't really making any steps to become a priest. And then one day um, he said he was making a sandwich and uh, the guys that he hung out with kind of grabbed him and said, you got to come with us. And they threw him in the car and he, he said, I didn't get to eat my sandwich. He, was, he still kind of bemoaned that he didn't get to eat his <laughs> sandwich, but they took him to some uh, a charismatic conference of sorts or something. And the keynote speaker was Father Benedict Rochelle. And he said, and when I heard Father Benedict, he just hit me right between the eyes, and he goes, that's the kind of priest I want to be like. And so Stu decided he must be called to be a Franciscan, and so he made the decision, kind of gave away his stuff, abandoned some of it. Bill said he had to go back into where Stu was living in L.A. and kind of take the rest mm -hmm. of the stuff Stu had left. He drove his car to Ohio, I think, sold his car, got on a bus, and went to New York and mm -hmm. uh, tried out with the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. They sent him to Steubenville for a master's in theology, and uh, for a couple of years, and he really, uh, really liked being in Steubenville. Mm -hmm. And um, then, you know, at, at the end of that, the, the friars just said, you know, you're a great guy, but you're just not cut out to be a Franciscan with us. And 
Stu was kind of upset by that. He didn't like to be told, you know, that. Mm-hmm. And they said, but we do think you might have a vocation to the priesthood. So head back to Helena, talk to the bishop there, and see if he'll take you as a diocesan seminarian. And so Stu took the advice, and uh, the bishop accepted him and sent him to Mount Angel mm-hmm. to study for the Diocese of Helena. Mm-hmm. And what was, so Mount Angel's in Oregon, right? Yes. And, um, run by Benedictines. Right. And what was his experience there? Well, in, in terms of, um, you know, the formation experience, I know that, you know, most guys really liked Stu. Few didn't, <laughs> but most guys really liked him. He challenged them in formation. Um, he, there were some teachers and priests there that Stu really liked a lot, and there were some that Stu didn't care for. And he would make his feelings known to everybody, <laughs> particularly in class. And so sometimes his evaluations weren't the best, Right. Um, because he was kind of, you know, he was like call out people right, right. between the eyes. And they were like, he doesn't have any flexibility or humility to, to receive another mm-hmm. version other than his own. Um, but Stu was faithful and he stuck with it. And, uh, you know, everyone knew that. And he, even some formators, um, even here in Helena and at the seminary, I said, no, this guy is, is faithful. We've got to take it seriously. Stu also had a hip problem. And I think it was uh, maybe in his second year of theology that he had hip replacement surgery. They found a tumor, a fist-sized tumor, underneath his hip. And uh, after that surgery, Stu recovered, but he said it. he, he started to notice body weakness. And he said he tried to hide it because, you know, I didn't want anyone to know he was weak. Uh, he said one day I was in, in my room at the seminary trying to put my shirt on, and it was like all the energy in my body just drained out onto the floor. I couldn't even move my arms. Mm-hmm. didn't know what was going on. And uh, he kind of slowed down a little bit, but didn't think much of it. And then um, I remember after third theology, he was like, I got to get some doctors to look at me more because something's not right. Right. And uh, it was in fourth theology, they definitively diagnosed him with a a body myositis. So he was already a deacon at that? No, well, uh, it was interesting because he was ordained a deacon in December 2006. And everyone noticed that, like, he was slowing down and he was saying, you know, Sundays I'm so exhausted, I can't even do anything. We were supposed to go to dinner the night after his uh, transitional diaconate ordination. And uh, he contacted me and said, I don't have the energy to go to dinner. And I was like, that's wild because you love going to dinner. (laughs) And we're going to go to a movie. And he goes, let's just put it off for a few days. So we got together a few days later and... uh, I remember the vocation director just said, you know, something's not right with Stu. And then in January, he got one diagnosis. And then definitively, I think he, I, I found out in February uh, that he was had this disease. And what, what did this mean? Right. Was that back in Oregon? He or, was, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think he was, he went to doctors at Oregon State and then also um, down to Los Angeles to a specialist there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he was real upset by that and struggled with that? Well, it was almost like Stu didn't want to believe it. You know, he's like, well, this can't be right. You know, I'm going to be a priest and, you know, I I don't know what that means. You know, I'm a tough guy. I can fight through this. And they gave him a lot of hope. They said, you know, we don't have a cure for the disease, but we can slow this this progression down. They're making breakthroughs all the time. You know, and Stu was like, if I can stay alive long enough, maybe they can find a, a way to reverse this. It's an autoimmune disorder. And uh, 
Stu ne it never crossed his mind, at least in our conversations, that this would hold up his ordination, like this would be a problem. Um, because there had been saints that had, had physical handicaps, and they were amazing. So why should Stu be singled out? And so when, when the final evaluation uh, from the seminary came and just said, we're concerned with your health, and because of that, we don't know that we can necessarily uh, recommend you for priestly ordination, he was shocked and devastated. And he, so, but that wasn't the end of the story, right? That ultimately the diocese has the final say. Right, the bishop has the final say. And Bishop Thomas made it known that so he'd received the evaluation from the seminary and told Stu, though, but I'm going to pray on this and think about it. And it was from there, during that time, Stu was sent. He had been a seminarian in a summer assignment on the Native American reservation, uh, the Blackfeet. Uh, uh, in Browning, Montana, and uh, as a deacon, Stu was sent back there just so he could go back to Browning and serve there, and we'll we'll see what happens. So at the same time, I had made a change from the Diocese of Dallas to the Diocese of Helena um, because I had family that had moved to Montana and wanted I wanted to be up here closer to them, and uh, so the the uh, Bishop Thomas said we're going to also Bart have you just wait just just a little while since you're kind of new to the diocese mm -hmm. and everything. And I said, that's fine, you know. So we both would have normally been ordained in the summer of 2007, but we were both kind of waiting. Mm -hmm. So in the early fall of 2007, Stu went on a pilgrimage to Lourdes, France. And uh, he thought he was going to be healed. I mean, he, before he left, he told me, he goes, I'm going to go to Lourdes and get healed. And I was mm -hmm. like, wow, that's, that's pretty strong faith there, Stu. And mm -hmm. so when he went into the waters of Lourdes, he thought I'd get up and walk out. I mean, he, he just mm -hmm. said, our lady's going to heal me. And he went into the waters, got up, and fell back over into the water. Someone caught him, and they had to get a couple of guys to get him back up. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I mean, I think that of all the despair, that was the despair. Because he's like, I've given up everything to follow this path to serve God. I've gone through the entirety of seminary, um, learned everything I needed to learn academically and intellectually about being a priest. I've given up my heart and I, you know, I'm with this disease. God's going to take away my life. And now I'm not going to be a priest. And he just hit rock bottom. There's just, uh, just an abandonment, a devastation, um, hopelessness that entered his soul. And uh, one of his buddies um, that was on the um, pilgrimage, who was a priest, said, Stu, a lot of people did, went to a lot of effort to bring you over here to France. Give Our Lady another chance. Go back into the waters. And Stu didn't want to at first, but he finally agreed to it. And so Stu said, when I came out, out of the uh, waters of Lourdes the second time, there was an interior miracle. All of a sudden, all my anger, my despair, my despondency became peace. Just I was overwhelmed with peace and God's love for me and God's plan for me. And I just knew it would be all right. And uh, after that, they went on, as the pilgrimage finished, they went to Paris and to Notre Dame Cathedral. And she said in Notre Dame, we were going around looking at statues, praying. I was, someone was with me. I was giving them some history of these saints and got to the statue of uh, St. Joan of Arc. And I looked at it. I, I didn't know who it was. I knew who St. Joan of Arc was. I didn't know who the statue that was St. Joan. And he just said, who is that young boy? Mm -hmm. And some French woman overheard him and came up to him and said, that's Joan of Arc. And Stu was like, oh. So he said the he was patroness a, of France. Yeah, the patroness. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know. So anyway, Stu was 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 there. And he said, 
you know, pretty quickly after that, he had this moment where he was, he said, I, all the pain in my body went away for, for a moment is like, I was, I, I had no pain in my body. And I, I realized I wasn't really in my body. And I also realized that St. Joan of Arc was present. And there she kind of offered me an invitation. She said, you know, I, I carried the flag for, for Christ and for France. And I suffered martyrdom. And God wants to invite you to carry the cross of Christ uh, in your disease and to, uh, to be a martyr for God in your disease. Would you say yes? And Stu offered himself in that moment, kind of in a mystic sort of way. He said, when I kind of came to, I was crying and the pain came back into my body. And so he didn't really know how to, how to process that. Stu wasn't just a born mystic. It was just kind of, you know, he, he processed, processed it himself going through that. And there, there was a moment where he said, yes, is that what you said? Did yeah. He, okay. Yeah. He just, he, I mean, interiorly he said, yes. Okay. And he said, from that moment on, I knew I would not be healed of the disease. I would do anything that I could to extend my life, mm -hmm. to take medicines, treatment. I would I would yeah. go to great lengths to do that. But I knew just fundamentally that I wasn't going to be healed of that disease. And did he have constant muscle pain, you think? Well, I, I mean, you know, it was the pain of like, you know, your muscles don't move the way they used to move. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, you want your fingers to move and they're not yeah, moving. Right. And you can feel them, yeah. but you can't move them. You have an itch, you can't scratch it. You, mm -hmm. you know, you you can't, you know, you, you got to steady yourself mm -hmm. um, to get up. Wow. So, but when he got back from France, he went and saw Bishop Thomas. And Bishop says, I prayed to Our Lady and I've decided you need to be ordained to the priesthood. I'm going to oh. ordain you and Bart together. So. Oh. What was that day like? Um, I was, it, you know, it was one of those things for both of us. It was like, it was a long time coming because um, you work so hard to be a priest. You go through so much schooling, so many years in seminary formation. And so the fact it was really happening was kind of surreal. It was funny because Stu and I had come, had come from such um, backgrounds. We weren't traditional backgrounds for <laughs> priestly candidates. So we kind of had that in common, uh, both converts. And uh, we still had doubts. You know, there were some doubts that we shared together. We weren't, mm -hmm. weren't going to share them publicly, but just mm -hmm. doubts about, are we going to be able to do this? And, mm -hmm. and Stu was always like, yes, we're going to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, we're going to do it together. And you're going to be a good priest. And right. we're going to be priests together. Yeah. And so I, I mean, we even talked about it on our ordination day. And uh, I remember standing at the back of the cathedral right before we went down. And I looked at Stu and I said, this is it. And he gave me that. He, he, he Sometimes he just gave me this look where I knew what he meant. And it was like, this is it. We're going to go and we're going to offer ourselves for Christ. And we're going to, you know, be on the cross with him. And we're yeah. going to arise with him and we're going to serve him. Yeah. And yeah. let's do it. And here we go. Yeah, I think, I know that's been my experience too with moments of we weren't sure, doubt, whatever. And God put people in my life that had plenty of uh, self assurance and things to, yeah, <laughs> to do. Yeah. It's funny how that works. But I know that uh, Stu spoke at, we both spoke at the end of the ordination. Uh, Bishop had, had just told us before, he goes, you both are going to talk, you figure it out. And Stu just looked at me and said, you go first. And that was all, that was the end of the conversation. So, but that was great because Stu got up and he just said to the congregation, he goes, I'm a miracle right in front of you. And barring a miracle of Christ, I'm going to die with this disease. You can see it in my body already. I'm on crutches and 
but I'm doing this for the love of God. Yeah. And God's called me to it, and God is real. And you all need to know that, that yeah. God's work in our lives are real. People, I mean, people that didn't even know Stu that had come for me were just like, I was just crying. It was just an amazing message. And uh, from that point on, Stu knew he was on limited time, and he yeah. served with great zeal right. every moment of his priesthood. He had some dark days, but for the most part, he was right at it. Yeah. And I, I guess he had a lot of gratitude towards the bishop. Yes. Yeah, Bishop Thomas was tremendous yeah. to Stu. I mean, really to both of us, he was just great. Um, and, and, his, and his faith, you know, really came out and his prayer life, praying through this for both of us and for Stu especially. Mm-hmm. And so he was a priest for eight years? Is that right? uh, well, he's a priest forever, right, Father? Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, no, but here on this earth, so 2007 to 2014, six and a half years. Six and a half, yeah. The last four was in a nursing facility? Right, <clears throat> at Big Sky Nursing Facility. So he did, uh, he, first assignment was on back on the reservation as a priest and at the Little Flower Parish, and then on to Holy Family in Anaconda for uh, almost two years. And then from there, he was just getting so weak and had to be in a wheelchair full-time um, onto Big Sky Care Center because they wanted to get him back closer to his parents and his family, and also they had a lift in Big Sky that could actually pick Stu up so he, he could shower, he could go to the bathroom, right. you know, they could do what they needed to do. I don't know if you can tell us or hint that some of the struggles he did have in the priesthood that um, and how he persevered through that. Was it just the limitation, the physical limitation? Yeah, for the most part, yeah. it was just his weakening body. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were multiple times. I mean, he did it with other people too, but He'd say, Bard, you got to come over. We got to dock. And I'm like, okay. And uh, so I come over, and if there was a line or whatever, he'd just say, he'd just tell people he's done for today, you know. I mean, because it yeah. was like, Stu was just kind of, it was interesting. He'd say, close the door, you know, and sit down. And it was just like, you know, I can't celebrate Mass anymore. I, I can't do this. I, I'm getting weak. I'm going to die. And it's hard to breathe and mm-hmm. I can't eat. And, you know, this is driving me crazy. And, mm-hmm. You know, and I'd always, I just had this sense. It was like God just telling me, as he's encouraged you, you keep pushing him. Right. And I was just like, Stu, you can't give up. Let's figure, what's the problem? Let's figure out a solution. I said, God is working through you. And you're getting humble enough to realize it. Yeah. But he's working through you and you got to keep going. And and always at the end of that time, Stu would agree that, you know, he wouldn't give up. And uh, he had that conversation a few times with some other friends and, and, but I really pushed him. I did. And once I really pushed him really hard, I mean, he was like done. And I just said, I got mad at him. Mm-hmm. And I kind of almost bullied him a little mm-hmm. bit. But Stu took it. I mean, you know, he yeah. heard it and he and kept at it. And boy, am I glad I did that because, I mean, I hated that because the guy was suffering. But mm-hmm. he was just like, his ministry, those last couple of years, man, he was incredible. It was amazing to see what God could do with him. And there was a point that he could not offer Mass anymore? No, I mean, well, so eventually he couldn't do it on his own. I mean, and I could talk about that. But then eventually we recruited people to help him. And uh, I I talked Stu through it. He didn't like the idea at first. And I said, look, Aaron and her in the Old Testament had to hold up Moses' arms so they could win the battle. Mm -hmm. Why are you so proud that you won't do that? And Stu took that. And he goes, okay. And I said, here's the guys we're going to teach. I taught three guys how to help him, and then he eventually got more guys taught, and there was a, a whole crew that could help him do Mass. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, they would move his hands, they would, you know, do 
do the things he needed to do. They would help him elevate things. They would even give him a little bit of communion so he could, you know, complete the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then he would instruct them on exactly how to purify um, when he couldn't do it himself. He would watch them do it and tell them, you know, you got to do go around again, put more water in there, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. He was very cautious and about right. that sort of stuff. Was there any uh, moment, any particular mass that stands out that was moving for you or you heard about? Yeah, so uh, when I was assigned to St. Mary in Helena, um, it was interesting because they had redesigned the sanctuary and both the ambo and the altar so that a, a priest in a wheelchair could use it. Mm. And they just thought, well, someday there'll be a priest in a wheelchair. Well, Stu, <laughs> Stu wow. was there and I said, hey, I'm at St. Mary. Um, and you haven't scheduled any masses, you come over and you can do mass in this church. It's designed for you. So he he helped me a lot for a couple of years. I mean, I would put him on the schedule and you know, Bill would bring him over and it was just great. But the first time he came over to St. Mary, it was the first time I saw him celebrate mass from his wheelchair. <clears throat> and I remember he, you know, he was like, he had to elevate the patent and the chalice for, for that. And he couldn't raise his arms. So the way he got the uh, the blood of Christ and the chalice lifted is he'd slide his fingers. He couldn't bend his fingers, but he'd slide them between the stems so he could, you know, steady the chalice. And then he would lean his torso over to the left and he would get really low. And as he did, his his hand would raise Christ and the chalice, you know, the blood of Christ and the chalice. And I just, I was behind him that the first time I saw him do it, and I thought, my goodness, I mean, here is, you lower yourself to raise Christ. Mm-hmm. Literally, we're watching this. Mm-hmm. And it was profound. I mean, it struck me really profoundly. I think, you know, I, I my mask got taken up to another level when I saw mm-hmm. Stu do that. Right. And I was sharing with you, I just, I talked to a lady that was away from the church 40 years yeah. and witnessed, watched, she said, particularly at the consecration, the elevation that just moved her to come back to, to mass. and. Uh, and that's been a such a joy this couple of days, just hearing from the community, people that knew him, and and really disparate groups, you know, yeah. not just Catholics. Really you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and they, someone was sharing with me too. A lot of uh, women, uh, students from Carroll, would come to him for counsel and advice, and that he helped them in their discernment. I I thought that that struck me because he could appeal to so many. You know the youth, young adults, yeah. and older people, marriage problems. And just... It didn't matter who you are, how old you were, how young you were, uh, what your background was. If if you wanted to see Stu, he would like come on in. Let's have a talk. Yeah, you know he, he'd see anybody. Right. Anybody. That's what. Yeah, that's what the nursing facility. The people told me that the facility that they, most of them weren't Catholic, but he had time for them. And yeah. The, the fun thing now is like at Carroll College is telling the students about Stu and uh, finding them taking to his story and then asking for his help, his intercession, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, so it's like that. It just it just keeps moving forward. It's just really beautiful and amazing. Right. right. Any, uh, yeah, you told us one story about the family. Is there any other stories about his intercession? Or I know you feel strongly that he is he wants to help us or yeah. that God's plan is. Yeah. You know, the thing I can say is definitely, I, I will say, I believe there's there are miracles happening through Stu's intercession. 
sometimes those miracles have this kind of, and I don't, without going into a lot of detail, this kind of cattywampus way that they come out. And it's like Stu's Mark signature of mm. like, yeah, I, you got my intercession. But because you always, sometimes the, the miracles are always still pushing you forward to God. It's not like you get what you want and then you're done. Yeah. It's like you get a grace, but then you have to keep. You have to give. You have to keep giving. And yeah. and the, the miracle just calls you to that. So I know there's one, there's one young lady that was kind of really despair because she was, her uh, boyfriend was discerning priesthood and. Um, they weren't going to be dating anymore, and it just really bothered her. And I, I took her and a few of her friends out to the cemetery, and I said, why don't you ask this guy to help you? I told her Stu's story, and so she started praying for Stu's intercession. And I said, you know, it, it'll it'll help. And it was really amazing because after she started doing that, she just had this, she goes, I just have this peace about it, you know, like it's going to be okay and and everything. And then I said, You're, it's not over with yet. And she said, what do you mean? I said, just be patient. Well, a few months later, um, the guy comes back and says, I've discerned not to be a priest. I want to date you. And so those two are dating. So I said, here's God's grace right here. Now you guys are going to have to work at, at dating because Stu's going to keep pushing you. Right. And they're both going to be uh, great young people in the church and do a lot for God. It's yeah. just great to see. Yeah. Well, Father, thank you so much. All right. Good to be with you. Yeah. yeah. Amy, thank you so much for talking with us. And uh, you're the younger sister of... Father Stu, about seven, eight years. And, uh, yes. And I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about uh, growing up together and your relationship with him. Yeah, absolutely. He was my big brother, so, you know, I kind of idolized him. I wanted to be around him all the time. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to do the stuff he did. Um, we had a lot of fun growing up. Um, I wanted to hang out with him and his friends as much as possible. You know, all his, all his uh, high school football buddies, so... It was great. And he was a fun guy. I've heard some stories. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was a fun guy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> he wrestled and uh, was he a big hunter? Or any no, no, he didn't do any of that. He was more of a sports guy. Okay. You know, he, he would uh, gain weight for football, cut weight for wrestling, always successful at it, you know, and then mm -hmm. the boxing came along and of course he excelled at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I've got a story about the boxing. So um, I think I was about... 12 or about 12 I believe when he was really getting into the boxing and he'd come home after boxing practice and I'd say can you teach me how did it go you know you're like yeah yeah grab, grab a pillow so I'd grab a pillow and he'd have me hold it out in front of me as hard as I could and he'd punch through the pillow and the pillow would always hit me in the face yeah. so we did that for about two weeks every time he'd come home I'm like can you teach me something can you teach me something so finally after about two weeks of that I knew it was coming right so I'm holding the pillow out and he punches, he goes to punch the pillow, but before I could, I threw the pillow to the side, ducked under, got him right in the gut. He goes, oh, <laughs> it's about time. <laughs> and so from that point on, he started teaching me things. So right. that's kind of how it went. Yeah. Yeah. And he gave you a love for athletics. And he did. He did one of the first difficult workouts I ever did. He took me to Vigilante Stadium which is kind of uptown and it was always locked, but there was, we, we got in cause there was a way you could kind of get through the fence. Right. So he took me in and he had me doing wind sprints and running the bleachers. And I mean, he had me, he had me working so hard. I had to go and I got a little bit sick and he, and he come, I came back and he goes, okay, you ready to keep going? I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's go, let's go. And he did that up until he died. When I'd come up to visit, I'd come up about, I don't know, maybe three, four times a year. We'd go work out, right. you know, we'd go to the gym and he'd be the trainer. 
time. Yeah, and there was another gal usually that would come with us or just me. And he'd be whizzing around in his power chair telling me exactly what to do. You know, you got five more. And instead of saying, no way, you're just like, okay, I got it. I got it. So, yeah, he was a great, great trainer up, up till the end. And he went to Carroll College? The local, yeah, yeah, he did. And he studied English, I heard. Yeah, English literature. English literature and writing. Or? No, he was always very articulate. Mm -hmm. And if Stu was interested in something, he mastered it. Mm -hmm. So if it was something that he had a deep interest in, mm -hmm. he would learn everything about it. And mm -hmm. very, very intelligent. But if he didn't like it, he just really couldn't really give it much time. Right. And then he had a boxing career, started in college, went after for, for a number of years. How long was that? He quit about, you know roughly how old he was? Uh, when he stopped boxing? Mm -hmm. um, I believe somewhere between 84 and 86. So if I was 16, yeah. about 22-ish. I want to say. Oh, okay. And he um, he also was like a bouncer, right? At a bar. Yeah, he was at the Ice House in Pasadena. It was a comedy club and bar. Oh, then okay. there was also another bar, kind of kitty corner from it out there. And so he would uh, bounce at that bar as well. And I remember when I, um, I was out visiting one time, because my dad was out there at the time working as well. So I went out to visit and went to the Ice House and he had to work. So, you know, I watched the comedy and everything. I can't remember if it was there at the bar, but there had been a fight he had to break up mm -hmm. and he had to, he had to bounce somebody, you know, they got, they got physical with someone. And so he had to bounce them. And then he came back in. I'm like, you okay? He was like, yeah, yeah. He goes, give me a minute. So he went back out to make sure that the, that the guy was okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of picked him up and made sure he had a ride home. I think he may have even called him a taxi to wow. take him home. That's wow. kind of the guy he was. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole, the acting bug that hit him, um, he went out and pursued it like seven years or something like that? Or yeah, as somewhere in there, maybe not quite that long. Maybe after the first few, he kind of realized it wasn't really for him. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't really what he, the, the industry, I think, was really not what he wanted to do, and he wasn't willing to kind of sacrifice who he was for that. Yeah, yeah. And... He loved movies, though. You all as a family would yeah. talk about movies. We would. We would. We yeah. would watch Rocky every chance we got. He and I would sit here and watch it. And then as we grew older, sometimes we would just call each other up and quote parts of the movie, like, stop the fight. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, he, he quit the acting jobs and then um, worked for a museum. And that's when the wreck happened, right? Yeah, he was on his way home from work one day on his motorcycle and um, was hit by one car and run over by another mm. and critically injured. Mm. Did he break a lot of bones in that? Uh, I don't recall which bones he broke, but yeah, and his head, um, his helmet, I think, basically saved his life. It had a crack, it was cracked almost all the way through. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then at some point, that was kind of a beginning of a spiritual kind of experience. It was, you? it was, yeah. he. He had said, and we didn't talk about that part a lot, but maybe this is what I've heard from other people, is he had an experience uh, right after the wreck while he was in the hospital, and that's kind of when he knew he was going to be a priest. Right. And some of his, his girlfriends helped him yeah. deep in his faith? Yeah, um, one of his longtime girlfriends, um, one day um, they were together, and she was vacuuming, and he said, um, well, what's going on with you? And she said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he said, you're glowing. He said, you're, you're 
you're beautiful. You're there's like a, a light around you. And she mm. said, well, I've just been to confession and I hadn't been in a long time. Mm. And if we're going to continue our relationship, you know, you're going to need to join the church. Mm. So he did. And that, that kind of started that journey as well. And he, someone's telling me too, that he was real active in the parish there. Yes, he was. He was. He, he, he loved it. And, um, and that grew, I think he taught some high school out in California. He did. <laughs> he taught up at Alameda and he was a wrestling coach there too. Yeah, and the kids loved him. I went to probably four or five of the wrestling matches, and mm -hmm. they just loved Stu. Yeah. They just loved, and he loved the kids too. Right. It was great. And during this time, he's he's thinking about the priesthood because I think at his baptism, he felt some the idea he came did. to him. It did, it did, and I think that uh, one of one of the the priests that you know um, baptized him said, "Oh, don't worry about it." When when adult males get baptized they all think they're going to need to be priests it, it'll go away and i remember Stu kind of fighting it like no not me a priest what yeah. and he you know he tried as as long as he could but it just kept coming back to him wow and then he tried it and um he joined the franciscans in new york for a while yeah then, yeah i don't think that was his calling i don't no. think that worked out for everybody so yeah. yeah so he moved on from there yeah and but so he joined the Diocese of Helena, and then he's studying in Oregon, and that's when the diagnosis came. I think it was yeah. like the last year. I think so, pretty close to the last year, the inclusion body myositis. Yeah. Wow. He described it um, as one time trying to stand, and it felt as if uh, there was a ball on a table that was slightly tilted, and the ball was rolling off. He said that's what his energy felt like. It was just slowly draining away. Obviously, he was upset. Yeah, he had a hard time with it at first. He just, it, he didn't understand why, and I think he, he really had a hard time because he'd always been so physically active. You know, a boxer, a wrestler, a football player, always physically fit. So it was real difficult for him. But once he, once he accepted it and grasped it and knew that there really isn't a cure for this, it's it's not going to go away. It, it's almost as if he embraced it and he just was at peace with it. And the bishop, you know, wanted to ordain him and really felt like it was God's will. And you all have a beautiful cathedral here in Helena. Yeah. Tell us about that day of his ordination. It was, it was amazing. The cathedral is such a gorgeous building. When the sun comes in through those stained glass windows, it's just breathtaking. And then there's my brother standing up there with his sticks, as we called them. And he says, you know, I stand before you a broken man. And tears were coming out of his eyes. It was, it was so emotional and so overpowering. And there was such grace and peace and love just pouring out of him. It, I think everybody felt it. It wasn't a dry eye in the house. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Absolutely not. It was packed. It was. It was packed, yeah. And Bart, Father Bart was also getting ordained at the same time. And so I got to meet him. And he's, he's a wonderful human. Him and Stu were the best of friends. And he had some, he had some active ministry for a while, eventually. Yeah. In, yeah, in Anaconda. He was over there. Um, and uh, my dad ended up going over there and living with him for a while to assist him as his disease progressed. And what did that, I, I know you all in your family 
give a great witness of caring for others. And, and did that really make an impression on you to see your father when he retired from work and he was helping him in the parish? Yeah, yeah, it was it was amazing. He, yeah, he retired and almost immediately went and was taking care of Stu and and helping him all the way to the end, you know, and then. Um, my mother uh, was ill and he took care of her as well and he's he's a he's my father's a, a great man but he's even better when he's helping others and he has really found a love of the church and and uh, because of Stu was also baptized and my mother was baptized before she passed away and what did you think when he's in the nursing facility Lines of people coming to see him. <laughs> Were you out there telling stories about high school? Or <laughs> no, no, I saved all those. I figured if he wanted to tell those stories, he could tell those stories. But a lot of those people already knew the stories yeah. um, because they went to high school with him. Right. And um, I know we've talked before a little bit about how people um, maybe had been away from the church or never had really much experience with the church. And they'd come to visit Stu because they remembered him from high school or and he'd talk with them, and a lot of those people ended up going back to the church or, or becoming Catholic for the first time. And that impressed you, seeing him offer Mass. What, what touched yeah. you about that? It was, um, it was pretty emotional because, you know, I'd come up about four times a year, and every time I'd go to Mass up at the nursing home, and every time he gave Mass, it, it, as he progressed through the disease, it just it became more and more special. You could really feel his love for God and love for what he was doing. It was, it was amazing, actually. I cried every time, every time, until the one time he sang Linda Ronstadt, Love is a Rose, and then I was dying laughing. <laughs> it was hysterical. And the mass was in the nursing home. It was downstairs in the dementia ward. It's when the Alzheimer's unit and so everybody would file in. There was always, you know, standing room only. And, you know, somebody, the, the residents could come and go as they pleased. And there was this one woman, I believe her name was Ethel. And she was a sweetheart, but she was pretty far into her Alzheimer's disease. And she'd wheel herself in and go over to the corner. And so here's, Stu's here and she's over in the corner and she's yelling and, you know, starting to take off her clothes. And, you know, she got down to a certain point and Stu never missed a beat. <laughs> He never, he never got upset, nothing. He would just say to one of the, one of the assistants, hey, Joe, could you come over here for a minute? I think Ethel's having a rough day. <laughs> and he'd come and get her and take her out. But it was never, it was never, hey, you know, could you keep these people out of here? No, it was all just part of it. Stu loved everybody. Didn't matter your station in life. Mm -hmm. Stu was, he was kind. And it's interesting because everybody thought he was this tough, mean guy. Even when he was being tough and fighting, he was still so kind kind and generous and you know how people say uh, do the right thing when nobody's looking back when he was all tough and bad he would do the right thing because nobody was looking like you'd be like okay can I do this without anybody seeing me he was always always kind I think I learned that from him as well there, there was one time when I was back and and I took him up in his van the holy roller and uh, took him up to the cathedral and there's a parking lot and I think you might have seen it it's kind of far away from the steps that go up and so I was gonna pull up in front and help him out because he was using his sticks at the time. And uh, he wanted me to park there and I you know, kind of helped him get out and he goes, wait here. I'm like, well, you don't, no, I'm good, I'm good. So he, you know, it's probably, it, it was a ways away to get to those stairs. And he's starting to walk towards the stairs and he sees an elderly woman 
with bags in each of her hands starting to walk up there as well. So I see him quicken his pace. And I'm thinking, oh no, he's gonna fall. If this is, oh, this is not good. But I knew exactly what he was doing. He was trying to get up those stairs faster than she got up there so he could hold the door for her. That just kind of explains Stu, you know? Right. He just right. was always kind, always, yeah. absolutely. And he was, he was tough and kind and smart and vulnerable and stubborn and giving. I think that even when, even when he had nothing to give, even when people, people would give him things. I remember when he was in the sem seminary, like starting out, you know, I think one of his friends gave him a computer, gave him a laptop and said, yeah, because Stu really needed a laptop for his studies. And the next time the person came to visit, they were, where's the laptop? Oh, I gave it away. Well, why? Oh, because somebody needed it more than I did. He was always doing that. And he, he was close. To, I heard there was a couple of friends from seminary that became priests and would come visit him. Yes, yes. Father Ed mm -hmm. uh, Benehoff, mm -hmm. he's down now um, in the Beverly Hills um, parish. Or, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, he's down there. And I think that's kind of how Mark found out about Father Stu. Because it was, uh, I think it was late one night, maybe they were drinking some wine, mm -hmm. and Father Ed, Father Stu had just passed away, and so Father Ed was telling Mark right. kind of about Stu, and he got so interested in the story. Wow. Yeah. yeah he was, and then he would come, and I was told if they would have a good time together, he would come alive seeing his old friends. Absolutely, friends. yeah. And his friend Rob um, wasn't in the seminary, but a very, very, very good man doing lots of things to help people and they would come up and they'd have a lot of fun when they came up were there some people that struck you that would come to see father Stu, uh or maybe some stories you recall or or something that impressed you about that time because i heard there was like a line. There, yeah there was always lines of people and you know after the after the mass people would want to come up and and my understanding is you know when i, I because i wasn't there all the time but um, lots of people would come for confession, you know, they'd just be lined up and people would want to do things for him. You know, um, I had mentioned they, you know, he would let people rub his feet because he couldn't, you know, at that time reach his feet and they would swell and, and get pretty sore. So you could rub them and put lotion on. And it was kind of a way for him to let other people give back to him, which right. I think was difficult for him because of how strong he had been, but he realized how much it meant to other people to be able to do something like right. that for him. Right. Yeah, I've, I've spoken to some locals and um, you know, some of the local women had friends with them too, and it's not like they helped them with whatever. And, uh, they did, yeah. they did. There were, some, there were some people that were so close to him. I mean, best friends, you know, they just, he helped them with some major, major, issues that had come up in their lives and he talked them through it and helped them and and then there was also there was a group of girls that he would uh, work out at the gym mm -hmm. and he would do that to me as well you know he was he was quite the the drill sergeant there when you'd go to the gym he'd, he'd be yeah. making you do all your reps and <laughs> you know buzzing around in his chair yeah. telling you what to do yeah. and the day he did pass away were you able to be up here? Um, I wasn't. Uh, him and I had a discussion when I was up in April for my uh, father's uh, baptism. Mm -hmm. And that was the last time we spoke. Mm -hmm. And we had a discussion and and he didn't want me to come back for that. So so I didn't. Oh. I came as soon as I got the word, I came back. Oh. Yeah. yeah, we had a, a nice long farewell. Yeah. 
It was beautiful. It was interesting to me that like, you're not Catholic and you said he never pressured you to become Catholic. He didn't. He didn't. Um, I, after Masses, sometimes I would have questions mm -hmm. and he'd explain things to me in the stew way, which mm -hmm. is basically how I would best understand it. Mm -hmm. You know, questions I'd have about a certain topic or, or, you know, a certain part of the Bible that he was quoting or, and he'd always help me understand it, but he never once pressured me. Right. Yeah. He was still just my big brother. Yeah. And the, the funeral itself, um, well, he's, he's buried at Resurrection Cemetery or something? Is that right? Yes, yes, I believe so, yes. And there was a big, many people came for that. Oh yeah, the funeral was huge. There was, yeah, tons of people there. People from Anaconda that he had touched, you know, people from California, people from the seminary, you know, uh, people here in Helena. Mm -hmm. Just far and wide, old friends, new friends. Yeah. And what was one of the, the lasting impression, maybe? I, is there something you think about his life now that strikes you? That I know sometimes I think of my relatives and things that they endured and went through mm -hmm. and inspires me today. Yeah. Is there something like that? Every day I wake up and I can get out of bed on my own. Yeah. And I can hear, I can see, I can, it's, I think of him every morning, every morning, because he couldn't do a lot of those things. He couldn't get up or get out on his own. And just the fact that I'm able to do just that, just mm -hmm. that, wake up every morning, I'm so grateful. And I think of him and that's kind of how I start my day. Right. I think of what good can I do today? Right. You know, so I, I try and do that as much as possible every day, something a little better than the day before. He had that effect on everybody. <laughs> yeah, he really did. And so every day when I wake up, I want to be a better person because of Stu. Well, thank you so much. For oh, you bet. You bet. You bet.